In his classic 1973 essay, The Social Ideology of the Motor Car, philosopher André Gortz wrote that cars offered the masses the bourgeois privilege of going faster than everyone else. But, quote, as the working class began to buy them as well, defrauded motorists realized they had been had. They had been promised a bourgeois privilege. They had gone into debt to acquire it. And now they saw that everyone else could also get one. What good is a privilege if everyone can have it? It's a fool's game. Worse, it pits everyone against everyone else. General paralysis is brought on by a general clash. For when everyone claims the right to drive at the privileged speed of the bourgeoisie, everything comes to a halt. And the speed of city traffic plummets, in Boston as in Paris, Rome, or London, to below that of the horse car. At rush hours, the average speed on the open road falls below the speed of a bicyclist. That's my most memorable experience of driving, sitting in traffic. Because, like most Americans, I often can't choose a bicycle, or a train, or a bus. The freedom promised by the car is an illusory one. It obscures the reality that we are subject to a system of control. We are forced to drive, slowly and miserably, because our infrastructure commands it. Until we decide to leave the city and go on a road trip, the ultimate atomized American pastime. Racing through space with the windows up and the AC blasting. That's where today's story starts. Caroline Canner and Jackson Roach left LA last summer, hitting the open road on Highway 395 in the Eastern Sierra. And they asked a group of artists, activists, road workers, and scholars, what does the highway do to our experience of the world? The way we see landscapes, cities, and each other. This is the second episode of The Dig Presents, which is a really exciting project. It also costs a lot of money, and that's because each of these stories requires a lot of labor. Ultimately, over the coming years, we need to make The Dig Presents self-sustaining. In order to afford a second season, we need to raise just $1,000 in additional monthly revenue. Please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig and help make that happen. Okay, here's Jackson and Caroline. Superhighway by Caroline Kenner and Jackson Roach. So, yeah, what? Where does it start? Does it start with wildflowers? Caroline, do you want to do the thing that we were thinking about doing? We're gonna, uh, we're gonna do something kind of silly. Chris, please bear with us. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shall I share my screen? Okay. Chris, what flower is this? <laughs> uh, that's purple loose strife. Okay, amazing. <laughs> Caroline, you want to do the next one? Okay. Uh, prairie ragwort. It's rosin weed. Uh, stiff goldenrod. St. John's wort. Shelly Fenstman. Rattlesnake master. Butterfly milkweed. That's easy. Orange. <laughs> That's all I've got. <laughs> that didn't do too bad. Yeah, impressive. No, that was extremely impressive. <laughs> Chapter one. The blur. So my name is Chris Helzer. I'm the director of science for the Nature Conservancy in Nebraska. A field guide to roadside wildflowers at full speed by Chris Helzer. It made me laugh to think about the idea of making a field guide with blurry photos to represent what you would see from the car. We all know the best opportunities to see wildflowers come while on the road. Whether along an interstate highway or a remote country road, 
flowers of all colors and shapes are there to add beauty to our trip. Unfortunately, most wildflower field guides are nearly useless for roadside flower viewing, written for the eccentric botanical enthusiast who wanders slowly through prairies, stooping low to determine whether the sepals of a flower are hispid or hirsute. If you're moving quickly, you can't pick out individuals within that mix. It's just blur. When a flower is seen from a car traveling 70 miles per hour. The world desperately needs a guide that illustrates and identifies characteristics of wildflowers as most people actually experience them. If you don't know how to identify something, you don't really see it as different than the thing next to it. And so you don't pay attention to it and then you don't learn anything more about it. Jackson in the car, we're driving to the mountains. Oh, that's awesome. I got locked out of my home. Oh, no. Oh, again? Should we play the alphabet game, but with stuff we have stuff to we see? Find. It? Yeah. Um, um, asphalt. Black. Uh, uh, cloud. Ditch. Ditch. Energy or electricity, electric, electricity, electric wire. Following, following. That's beautiful. <laughs> Gusty wind area. Hot menu. Interior. What's the interior of the car? Joshua tree. And we just killed a bug. <gasps> a giant lemon. A giant lemon. Mountain. National Guard armory. Open road. Pass with care. That's there's a sweetness there. Wait, what even starts with Q? The quandary of what starts with Q that we. Oh can my see. god, I love that. Road. Road. That looks like sage to me, or something. Oh, no. no, it's not. T, that was a T intersection. Undercarriage. Velocity. Weather. Extreme. Extreme temperatures. temperatures. Yeah. Now it's only 104 degrees. There's. Are those? I saw some yellow stuff. You see? Yeah, but are they flowers or are they? Uh, I have faith that we can get a good Z. Do you? Have, would you say you have zeal? Driving on a super highway reminds me of just like the scroll. Seeing billboards go by, snatches of other people's lives and the cars next to you. And that was like the original metaphor for the internet, right? the information superhighway. Just like, oh, here's a person, here's a site, here's an ad, here's another ad, here's another ad, here's another person, you know. Chapter two, the scroll. My name is Lou Cornum. I am assistant professor of Native American studies in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. I joke that I'm the designated passenger because I never learned how to drive. So I've spent a lot of time sitting in the passenger seat, just like staring off. I am an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation. So I grew up in Arizona and some of my like most fond memories are going on road trips, going from Tucson to Gallup, New Mexico. I'd have my mom wake me up at like all of the funny town names in Arizona. So there's like Sholo, which is named after a poker game, supposedly. Uh, there's Winkleman, Tuba City. Like there's all these just kind of like quirky little towns along the road. And so I'd be like, if I fall asleep, mom, like, wake me up at Winkleman or like, wake me up if I go to Tuba City. <laughs> and then when we'd get across the New Mexico border, my family has like a roadside trading post on the original Route 66. Back in the day, this was the one highway through there. And the way that they would like catch people's attention, right? Because yeah, people are cruising on Route 66 was to put up giant billboards. 
one after the other after the other, like hand-painted billboards, advertising, Chief Yellow Horse, which was just a name that my great uncle like made up for himself. Like he was not a chief of anything, but it's like his attempt at creating this kind of like character that would appeal to tourists who were traveling Route 66 creating this kind of like spectacle of himself to like make a buck selling either rugs that my family are made or jewelry that our family members made or a peek at a buffalo. He had like two buffalo. One of them was named Wilma after Wilma Mankiller. In some ways, that was kind of like my introduction to what it means to be Navajo. Almost like the job of being Navajo the grind of it. While at the same time, like recognizing how much of even my own like attachment to those other little small towns throughout Arizona going up into New Mexico was just like based on a total abstraction, right? Like I didn't have any real relationship to those places except to pass through and think that they had like a funny name. The word abstraction feels really, I mean, like abstraction is, is, is like a, you know, it's like an art historical term. It's also like a political mm -hmm. phenomenon, like a political relation between the people in the cars, the people who are trying to get the attention of the people in the cars. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, abstraction of places that is really facilitated by the kind of like the speed, the infrastructure that makes it possible can't be disentangled then from how the people who live in those spaces that these highways are intersecting are also then with the landscape abstracted themselves. It said information about Manzanar? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the information. see the world. There's not time to stop and really pay attention and to dig deep and to understand all of the underlying patterns. Something in there. That desire to understand what's behind the blur, to, to, to slow it down, to pick it apart, to get it into focus. Chapter three, the surface. My name is Chris Wells. I'm a professor of environmental studies at McAllister College. Leave your house and walk in any direction you choose. What's the farthest you could go without running into a place where cars have greater rights than you do. For most people in most places within the United States, you have to have a car to navigate the world easily and often safely. So you have a landscape that is completely designed around an assumption, which is that people will be navigating it by car. Um, can we ask you if you to make it a massive question, how <laughs> we got here? <laughs> yeah, so there were very different stages in the history of highway development in the United States. And just the idea of smooth, all weather, hard paved, roads everywhere 
blew people's minds. Roads are not just one thing because they traverse places. You might be on a surface that seems like it's the same thing for a hundred miles, but underneath you, the way it's engineered into the landscape might be radically different as you traverse different soils and hydrologies and geologies. The logistics of building and the challenge of designing roads that would be able to exist in all weathers, at all extremes of temperature, in all landscapes, that transcend particular place. That's a pretty big deal. And they go everywhere, which means that everywhere is affected. What if we just said we're making a podcast about yeah. the highway and uh, we're just, you know, trying talking to, to talking talk to people, people along the way. Yeah. And if you guys want to talk, we'd love to. Or do you yeah. guys want to, would you be, guys be, would you guys want to chat with us for a second? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Hello. Hi. Um, we're making a podcast. We're just talking to people along the way, wondering if you guys would be open to chatting with us for a couple of minutes. We got a couple of minutes. Okay. A couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Before somebody sees us standing around. <laughs> uh, what are you working on? We're going to pave this road right here, so I got to work with the state in order And a grader is just flattening. Or... Yeah, some motor graders got the blade in the middle, so back and forth, yeah. laying out about that much material at a time. Do everything from tree trimming down to traffic where... control, what signs need to be put out, how far, how often. What is that like? Uh, not too bad some days. Some days it's really bad. It depends on traffic. What makes it bad? Uh, drivers. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. not paying attention. Road you know. work ahead and slow signs yeah. mean they can speed up apparently. <laughs> they don't they don't, they pay don't slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ever like scared? No, not well. Of the driver? You're always aware. Yeah. I mean you can't just go out there and be scared, you wouldn't be able to work, but yeah, you're always aware of all the people on the road, so... Yeah. It seems like the road itself... I mean, you spend a lot of time on the road, but... Does the road itself, like, shape the life of the town in a big way? Or does it feel like the town is here and the road comes to the town? Uh... Yeah. yeah I, mean, <laughs> I just started doing this type okay. of work, so I'm four years in. Well, I've been You're here still... 23, and I still don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I got well, yeah, we should yeah, let you go. Thank you guys for talking to us. Thanks for chatting. Yeah. We appreciate it. Flowers. Those what? used to be flowers. Where? See the red? The red heads. <gasps> right? Yeah. Those are Definitely totally flowers. But or they the were. Remnants, yeah. They're crunchy. I think that I think that when I was growing up, I wasn't interested in landscapes or, or, or land or ecology, anything like that. Primarily because my experience of it was was almost always mediated by a windshield and, and by speed. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, so I was driving from the time I was 15 and you know, uh, oftentimes, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, I would drive home from school and I wouldn't even remember driving home. It was like I was on, on autopilot. That's a really creepy thing that cars do to us. Chapter four, the trail. My name is Robert Moore and I'm the author of On Trails and Exploration. Before humans ever arrive in North America, it's a continent of animals moving across the landscape. 
trying to find the path of least resistance between the things they need. So between their food sources, their water sources, the places where they sleep and the places where they go to mate. And over time, as they move across this landscape, they're creating paths. And they're sharing those paths. Because once a path is there, it's the path of least resistance. It's been cleared. So when the first humans arrive in North America, it's only natural that they will follow those paths as well. They'll expand upon them as they hunt animals, as they go to gather foods, as they connect with one another and create communities. This very vast trail network starts to expand across the continent. It's a fluid network that responds to the needs of all of those people, shifting and evolving as the climate changes, as the conditions change. And that exists for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and then arrive Europeans. In, in North America. And that is when things really start to change very quickly. We arrive with draft animals and horses, wagons, trains, and then especially automobiles. Things that have different needs. These new demands on the landscape. So if you go looking for Native American trails, ancestral Native American trails in America, what you oftentimes find is that they're buried directly beneath our road networks, that, that they're kind of entombed in asphalt. And yet, it's not a one-to-one -one tracing. Trails and roads evolve over time to reflect our values. And so, of course, our, our highways uh, evolved to become longer, straighter, harder, so that we could drive faster, faster, and faster, and faster. The way that highways are designed now oftentimes is they'll design them with these, they're called beauty strips, these lines of trees on either side to give you the impression that there's a forest on either side when in fact maybe 20 feet or 40 feet off there's a clear cut or a mine or you know a giant suburb. But you don't want to see that. You want the impression that you're driving through untrammeled wilderness. And so they create these illusions. Uh, they, they call it visual resource management. That's what capitalism, I think, will naturally generate, is the thinnest possible amount of wilderness. And then what exists outside of the nodes and the connectors? What are we not looking at? What is being ravaged while we're not looking at it? This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Occupation Organizer, A Critical History of Community Organizing in America by Clément Petitjean. The community organizing tradition is long overdue for re-examination. In this book, scholar-activist Clément Petitjean traces the history from its roots in the progressive movement to its expansion and diverging paths during the social movements of the 60s and 70s. At the time, Saul Alinsky became the most popular professional radical in the U.S., and groups like SNCC, SDS, and the Black Panthers recast organizers as horizontal, anti-hierarchical spade workers, those who do the work as part of the community, rather than standing apart from it. But in the years since, 
the professionalization of organizing work has only increased, despite the critiques. Only by grappling with its limitations and pitfalls, Petty John insists, can we learn to build durable, effective organizations for change. Occupation Organizer, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. If you like The Dig, another podcast you might like is Belabored at Descent Magazine, hosted by Michelle Chen and Sarah Jaffe. Belabored is celebrating its 10th anniversary this spring, bringing you in-depth analysis of the labor movement as it adapts to a new era of capitalism. They feature labor leaders like Stacey Davis-Gates of the Chicago Teachers Union, Alex Gordon of the RMT, and Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, labor historians and scholars like Lala Khalili, Eileen Boris, Bill Fletcher Jr., and Ruth Milkman, and rank-and-file workers from around the world. Sarah and Michelle provide context, history, and strategic insights for people navigating the workplace and organizing for power. This new season of Belabored is bringing you conversations on child labor and the British strike wave, immigrant worker organizing, and how to bargain for power with guests like Jane McAlevey. With reformers winning control of the United Auto Workers, hundreds of Starbucks stores going union, public school workers winning big in Los Angeles, and a potential UPS strike, there's never been a more important time to keep up with the labor movement. You can find more about Belabored at DescentMagazine.org slash Belabored. It's essential listening for everyone who works for a living. And that is probably almost all of you. Are you going to cross? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if we... Be careful. are growing high. Those ones are taller than us over there. Just right here. Yeah. Okay. It's called Blazing Star. Oh, cool. Blazing Star is named for its yellow star-shaped blossoms that bloom in summer and fall. This showy wildflower is indigenous to Western North America where it tends to grow in, in sandy and rocky habitats. It's buzzing with bugs. Bugs that you would not see from the car. No. I would, you can see the flowers, but you cannot see the bugs. No. Why, um, why do you study roadsides? Yeah, that's a, a great question. <laughs> Um, there are a lot of biologists that work in like, pristine know, mountain field stations and tropical rainforests and stuff. And I feel like I've always been in less pristine field sites. Um, <laughs> roadsides are highly polluted sites, but if you study human environments, that's just kind of where you end up working. Chapter 5, The Edge. My name is Emily Snellrud, and I'm an associate professor in ecology, evolution, and behavior at the University of Minnesota. We have as many roads in the U.S. as we have streams and rivers. Like, that's a huge amount of habitat. Sort of the traditional model is, well, we should set aside pristine areas of land for nature to live in. But when you look at a map of pristine areas of land, they're not that many. So if there's any way we can make use of that habitat right next to the road edge, you know, there are potential benefits, but it's not easy because a roadside is <laughs> heavy metals, lead, cadmium, zinc, copper, pesticides, solutes from exhaust, toxin gradients, VAHs, runoff from asphalt, seeds stuck in tires for invasive species. 
really stressful. When I moved to Minnesota, my very first winter here noticed just how much salt they're dumping on the roads. Like so much salt that you walk around and it feels like there's crunchy gravel underfoot. Sodium in salt is something that animals love, especially herbivores like deer at salt licks and stuff like this, because historically it's been limited in their diet. And now all of a sudden we're dumping like millions of tons of salt on the road. So humans have made this new landscape. Ooh, it is scary to be this close to the road. What? It's scary to be this close to the road. Roads are this ecological trap in some ways. They offer all of these resources to, to wildlife. Lots of animals uh, show up on roadsides to eat shrubs and, and feed on wildflowers. Snakes love to bask on them. Coyotes and vultures and magpies and ravens come to the road to eat carrion, uh, you know, the, the other animals that are killed by cars, and then they, they become victims themselves. Chapter six, The Trap. My name is Ben Goldfarb. I'm an environmental journalist based in Colorado, and I'm working on a book about road ecology. The speed of the car really disguises the violence of the highway. By virtue of moving so quickly, you don't actually notice the bodies of the dead. Maybe you see, you know, the occasional deer carcass or raccoon, you know, um, but, you know, you don't, you don't really notice um, all of the inconspicuous amphibians and songbirds and rodents, you know, the, the much smaller stuff that you would never see moving at 60 miles an hour behind glass. There's just an unbelievable, uh, you know, almost incalculable loss of life happening. Highway speeds are so far beyond the evolutionary experience of any animal. So if you think about like a, a turtle withdrawing into its shell or, you know, a skunk uh, trying to spray its attacker or a porcupine bristling, you know, these are, I mean, these are all strategies that worked for millions of years uh, against hawks and cougars and foxes and against a, a car. I mean, they're not only ineffective, they're actually profoundly maladaptive, right? Because you just stand your ground, you hunker down, uh, you know, you raise your quills and you get run over. That's speed fundamentally screwing up, you know, millions of years of evolution. The interstate highways come online in the 1960s. And right away, there's this huge spike in deer collisions. All of these deer are getting hit. It's like, you know, it's this giant crisis. Newspapers are writing about it. And then, you know, after a couple of years of that, the collisions basically stop happening on the interstates. And uh, it's, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of mysterious because there are still lots of deer out there. Right? The deer populations are growing, if anything, but people are no longer hitting them. And, you know, and what scientists realize is that as traffic is going up, the deer are basically refusing to cross the highway. You cross a certain threshold in the traffic rate, and the traffic is basically this continuous wall that animals don't even uh, attempt to penetrate. 
you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, there were all of these heartbreaking stories of huge herds of deer and antelope and elk basically coming to the edge of, a, of an interstate highway, not being able to move further south to their, their winter range and basically starving in these snow drifts along the side of the highway because they can't cross. That's when you lose an entire herd. Not when a few get hit, but when they, when they can't cross the highway at all. So roads are really disrupting ecosystems in, in this really kind of subtle, profound, multifaceted way. The road, the making of the road, the idea of the road, it's the first warning sign. We'll build the, the road to, to get the trees, and then that opens things up for mining, and then it opens up things for hydroelectric development, and then there's sort of a cascading uh, speeding up effect. Chapter 7 The Present My name is Leanne Bidasmuse Simpson. I'm a writer, a musician, and an academic. I'm Michi Sagik Anishinaabek and a band member of Alderville First Section. I often wonder when I'm driving down the highway in my territory if my ancestors would recognize would recognize our homeland. What worlds have already been ended? What medicines are no longer here? What animals are no longer here? And I think indigenous people carry those sorts of apocalypses with us. In thinking about the story, we've been thinking about what speed does to our perception of places and then how that, in, uh, how that perception changes the way that we interact with and relate to place and land. I guess the, the first question is, what does speed mean to you or what do you think of when you think of speed versus slowness? I think the first place it takes me is the political tactic the blockade. Over the course of my life, I've participated in a number of, of blockades. You see language being spoken. You see uh, systems of governance, care, cooking and medical supplies, child care. They're, they're sites of joy often with drumming and, and dancing and ceremony. During the Wasoatan uh, mobilization, my my kids who are now teenagers invited me to to the protest in my the town that I live in. And as a parent, watching them put their bodies <laughs> in the line of danger to do a, a round dance on on the main street where we live, stopping traffic blockading temporarily the road in front of really angry white motorists was, I think, one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had in my life. And it hit me sort of in a more visceral place than actually putting my own body out there. In terms of, of indigenous political life, it's a refusal. It's indigenous people putting their bodies between the colonizer and the resources that they're trying to extract. It stops and refuses 
that pathway of, of capitalism. And it also historically has worked. It forces you into the present. Because when you're driving along that road, you're thinking of the future. But when you're stopped and when you, you meet this blockade, you're forced into the present. Who are these people? What are they doing? Why am I stopped? And I think that those, those moments, those slow moments, those are the beginnings of, of new worlds. Tonight, several members of the Shinnecock Indian Nation are camping out on the east end of Long Island. Hey, Lou. Hey, how's it going? Hello. Thank you so much for, for making time a little extra time. Sovereignty Camp 2020 is a coming together of concerned people. I feel like there's so much to, to cover in, in the particular case with Sovereignty Camp, like camping out for a month off Sunrise Highway. The road itself is this disruptive force, and then it becomes this weird, like, opportunity. Sure, yeah, well, I mean, you know, like I was saying about infrastructure, that infrastructure is this way of kind of securing a certain future. Chapter eight, the sign. Sunrise Highway is the main route of the wealthy from New York City into the Hamptons. Once the highway was built, you know, fast forward almost 50 years, you have these like giant estates where people maybe live a few months out of the year and employ people who can't afford to live anywhere near there. And meanwhile, you know, there's an ongoing housing crisis on the Shinnecock Reservation in terms of there being enough housing, but also there being enough quality housing. And in order to help raise funds for the nation, the Shinnecock created and built this billboard. It's a giant LED billboard. Some drivers are aghast. Giant ads now lighting up the gateway to the Hamptons. Large ads for businesses, you know, alongside the highway, as well as at the top having a large seal of the Shinnecock Nation, which has like a whale on it, has people in the news. It's got a lot of the iconic Shinnecock purple. So that's kind of the like blazing emblem on top of the billboard. And then there's the money-making aspect of it, right? The, the advertisements. First of two giant electronic billboards is up and running in the Hamptons, intent on cashing in on tourist traffic. So they've always wanted one on either side of the highway, right? One for people going into the Hamptons and one of people leaving the Hamptons to go to New York City. The kind of intention of Sovereignty Camp was to create a kind of ring of protection for the construction of the second. We are protecting not only our land, but our rights for economic development too. We all put our tents up um, just behind the, the base for the sign and we could see the other one across the street. The unfinished pole uh, behind me symbolizes the 400 years of oppression that Shinnecock people have faced by the town of Southampton and the state of New York. During that month, we would have morning or evening demonstrations on the side of the highway, sort of flanking the highway. This is Shinnecock land. We are Shinnecock people, we're here. You have to respect us. And there was a kind of two-pronged feeling of both being like, wow, it'd be so easy to shut this highway down. 
Uh, like it's not that big. But at the same time, people are going at such speeds that there is a kind of fear too. A real sense of the danger in putting your body in confrontation with these speeding metal machines. I mean, there are people slowing down to like be like, what are you, what are they, you know, talking about? What's on that sign? And there's also like some antagonisms that we experience, right? Like people, you know, flipping us off, having this almost immediate visceral kind of contempt. There's a very strong desire to erase Shinnecock presence in the Hamptons. It seems like the, the fight is over, uh, uh, with the billboard specifically, the fight is over like the visual field of the road. <laughs> the New York State DOT issued this stop work order last week and a judge a restraining order, citing a ban on advertising on state roads and safety. The original sort of grievance was that it was basically like a garish kind of addition to the landscape, which is meant to be bucolic for the benefit of those like escaping, you know, the grime of their urban abodes to their like country homes. It's uh, quite mind boggling. And I think it ruins the whole, whole ambiance of the area. And so the Shinnecock can exist there as, uh, again, an abstraction but the actual presence of Shinnecock people is highly inconvenient to them. Shinnecock people making money in a sort of modern savvy way is too much of a contradiction with the idea of the kind of peaceful forest dwelling noble savage that people, you know, certain people associate with that kind of landscape. For years, efforts to achieve self-sufficiency, like a casino, were shot down. This has a smaller footprint and adds no traffic. So at every turn, they're being told that their ways of making money are not valid, are not right, are otherwise making life more difficult for the wealthy residents who maybe live there a few months of the year, uh, the majority of them, as opposed to people who live there year-round and have lived there for millennia. Mind you, this is, yeah, the Shinnecock attempting to make a living off an already existing major disruption, that being the highway itself, but then also this very undeniable contemporary presence. We know how to exist in your world, how to maneuver through the kinds of economic demands that are placed upon us by this like market economy but also still have our basis in these older forms of a different kind of economic system, one based on wampum, one based on the whale hunt. And at the end of Sovereignty Camp, it was almost a month long, we organized like a food giveaway and just passed out these meals to people, almost 500 bags of food. And it wasn't quite a blockade, but it was a slowdown slowing down the engine of colonial capitalism, right? And saying there's another way to live and another way to make a living. So if the future of the highway is sort of dependent on the erasure of the Shinnecock, or at least on their enclosure in one particular place and their containment there, then the construction of the billboard is a breaking out of that containment not only on the side of the highway, but vertically into people's line of sight. Just an unavoidable sign of what was and what is to come.
with sound design and original music by Jackson Roach. It was edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson, with editorial oversight from Daniel Denver and Alex Lewis. Thanks to Chris Helzer, Lou Cornum, Chris Wells, Robert Moore, Emily Snellrood, Ben Goldfarb, and Leanne B. Osmose Simpson. Flowers are absolutely advertising. So it's like your billboard is. There's a lot of wildflowers here. Yeah. <laughs> like if you had a snow cone uh, business, right? Purple, little purple guys. Purple, little red guys. Red, red, you know, the, the red flower red. is saying, hey, yeah. we're open. It's, it's mid June again. <laughs> Don't forget to stop by to get your pollen and nectar. Ooh, orange <gasps> ones. Okay, sorry. No, do it. I wouldn't have seen that if we hadn't stopped. And those white ones. I would have things. only noticed the big, the, the sun big one. ones. You have arrived. Thanks to Caroline and Jackson for that story. Everyone you heard in it has also written beautifully on the concepts covered here. From highway history to indigenous resistance to wildflower ecology. And you can find links to all of their work in the show notes, as well as a reading list of other things that informed Caroline and Jackson as they worked on the piece. Thanks also to the rest of the dig team, including Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Fiorio Frankos, and Ben Maybe, and to our partners at Jacobin. Our artwork for The Dig Presents is by Celia Nogales. If you like The Dig Presents, please contribute to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We are spending a ton of money on this, and I need to raise more, $1,000 a month in additional revenue, in order for me to order a second season. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please tell us what you thought about this story, and if you liked it, please share it with a friend, talk about it on social media, leave us a review, do all those things. We'll publish another documentary story around this time next month. You can find all our episodes on the regular Dig feed, as well as on the feed that's just for this series. Look up and subscribe to The Dig Presents, 